Welcome to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. If you've been listening for a while, welcome back. If you're new to the show, I'm your host, Fiona. My passion for sport really started when I was a competitive swimmer. This led me to study sport development at university whilst also working within the sporting industry. I'm a huge believer in sport being used as a tool for good. Each week, I'll bring you an episode with someone involved in the sporting world. It could be your local high school teacher or your childhood or current sporting hero. The difference is that it's not your typical type of questions. We talk about the highs and lows in their journey through sport, but also what they've learned from it and how it's made them who they are today. There's also a strong focus on how being involved in sport can impact the community. If you haven't already, make sure you hit follow wherever you're listening so you don't miss the drop of each new episode. If you're after some bonus content, then you can check out our Instagram or Facebook page at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. I'm a huge believer that sport provides the perfect environment to learn, explore and grow. This week's guest, Jared McDermott, talks us through his journey through triathlon and more recently, track cycling. Jared shares his lessons and insight into how sport has helped him develop a growth mindset, not just whilst wearing lycra, but also in the business context. I hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, you can connect via Instagram at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. I'd love to hear what you get out of each and every episode. So can you tell us about your sport? You've done a bit of triathlon and track cycling and how you got into it. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess I regard my current sport as track cycling. And and I did have a background in in triathlon. And um, I've been competing in triathlons. um, I go back to my 20s. I'm now approaching, I'm now 56. (laughs) So I think I did my first triathlon in my early 20s. And I was always a really weak cyclist. I actually think I had a bit of a fixed mindset. Uh, around that and I just always believed I could never be good at track at, at cycling it was always my weak leg in the, in the in triathlon basically what happened was um my wife introduced me to a local mechanic because I was always struggling to find a good mechanic and it turned out that he had a cycling background and and he was um he had a girlfriend called Joanne Aaron Sibia who and who's ended up being my coach my wife sort of saw that my wife's name is Leanne and she saw that as an opportunity to improve my cycling Mm-hmm. And um, so that's kind of how it started. I basically met her at the end of 2016 with the, with the whole idea being to try and improve, address a weakness in my in triathlon league. I followed the program and, and actually surprised myself with what I was able to achieve and actually became quite good at cycling. <laughs> um, and I guess in a way I did adopt more of a growth mindset, which helped achieve that. And then through that, turns out um, Joanne Aaron Sibia, she's actually a world masters track champion and um, her, her, and she's now married to the mechanic, and, and they've become, you know, two of my best friends. And and he's, you know, he was a former um, world level track cyclist, and they're friends with a lot of Olympians and some of Australia's best cyclists. And um, I used to go get invited on some social rides, and a couple of people kept saying, "You know, Jared, um, you should give track cycling a go. We think, you know, you've got natural physiology; you'd be suited to track cycling." And and after quite a few people kept talking about it, I decided to give it a go. But you can't just give it a go I mean track you've got to um you've got to actually be accredited or to actually ride on a velodrome on a bank surface and it's and, and so you um so I went out to Dunk Road Velodrome one day and a, a guy called Tom Dawson who actually coaches um Gordon Allen who you've had on the program previously Tom Dawson did a try the track session with me and um I immediately fell in love with the sport 
um, the first time I was on the uh, on the velodrome. And so it's just the journeys continued from there. But um, sorry, that's a pretty long answer to your question. <laughs> but that's that's how that's how I got into track cycling that's and how incredible. it evolved. And I did get to finish. I, I did achieve a, a, um, a major goal in my life um, in completing the Kona Hawaii Ironman in 2017. So that was kind of like finished business in a way, which was also I was ready for a new challenge as well. So that was probably part of the reason why I transitioned from triathlon into track cycling. So you started in your early 20s. Like, what was that like? You know, I'm assuming that the pathway was a little bit different back then. Yeah, well, that's a good point. So um, I had a bit of a running background and um, I ran a marathon as a, I think I ran my first marathon when I was 18 years old. I was, they used to have a triathlon down at Nara and someone at work wanted to put a team in it in, in, and they asked me to do the run leg. So I went down there, it was a 10K run and I just, but I, and, and I'd never been to a triathlon and I, it just captured my imagination. I'm just thinking, how good is this? I was just loved it and I was just like I have to do this sport I want to do this sport and I kind of instantly fell in love with triathlon and trying to think how old I would have been then I think I would have been about 21 maybe 22 years old and I was living I still live in Sydney and I was living in Sydney at the time and I don't think I left home left Nara that day till sort of lunchtime on the Sunday on the way home I went straight to a pool an indoor pool at Hurstville and swam and started (laughs) training that day and I think that week I bought a bike and (laughs) And I entered my first triathlon, which was in the Pan Triathlon, um, some months later. And that's, yeah, that's kind of uh, how I got into, into sport, into, into triathlon at that point. And we were speaking a little bit off air and you gave it up for a little while. What was it that made you take it back up? Oh, well, I got married when I was 25 <laughs> and then had three children. <laughs> and I've, I'm also, I'm a, you know, I've got a, a corporate career and I've, I, I, my balance in my, my focus in my life is very much on my family. I've kind of got three things in my life I focus on. So my career, family and friends, and then you know, my own personal interests. And I put my own personal interests, deprioritise those for probably 10 years or so. Um, I think, you know, I also mentioned to you offline that our eldest son was a, an elite level swimmer. So that took a lot of dedication to support his journey. And then we, and then my youngest, uh, our youngest is a daughter and, She's had a very big, um, significant career in dancing. So I spent a lot of time supporting my children and just did the, I tried to sort of stay in shape and do the occasional fitness event. I've ran a few marathons here and there. Just remembered, I remember I entered to do the Foster Ironman in 1994 and my wife fell unexpectedly pregnant and I was um, still thinking I might be able to do the Ironman. <laughs> um, but he was born premature like a week before the race, two weeks before the race, and I pulled out of the race. So I withdrew from it after having done all the training. And so it was, it was my dream at that point to do an Ironman and it was massive unfinished business. But I had to wait like another, from 1994 to 2003, so nine years I had to wait. It was a burning desire to, to get to do an Ironman. Yes, I was still doing things, but it wasn't like I, I was just more participating, not training like mad out or, or you know, putting in really significant levels of training week in, week out. I'd maybe do a concerted effort for three months leading up to an Ironman and, and, you know, because it was, it was not sustainable to do it, you know, month in, month out with a young family still. Mm-hmm. So then I ended up doing, um, prior to doing Hawaii Ironman, I'd done, I've, all up, I've done five, well, six Ironmans, including Kona. So along that journey, I'd done about, I'd done, I'd done five Ironman, you know. So I did Cairns, I did Melbourne, I did two in Port Macquarie, and then I did the one in Foster. 
Oh, awesome. What one's your so favourite? That's a good question. It's really hard to go away from Foster. So if anyone has, Foster had this unique atmosphere. And, you know, some of the world's best Ironman triathletes who have actually finished, you know, completed and experienced Hawaii often say that the best, best atmosphere they've ever experienced is at Foster. The whole community just got so behind that sport, so that event. And the atmosphere at Foster was just like, just, just you had to experience it to understand and appreciate it. And I'll never forget the first time running down that, you know, finish it and, and becoming an Ironman, you know, with my family and friends all there. It's a special moment, isn't it? Yeah, it was very special. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were talking about like what happened in 2016. So in 2016, you were actually watching Port, the Port Mac Ironman. I went through a period in my life where I probably didn't get the balance right in my life. I was, I was in a, working in a, in a, in a, role that I really wasn't enjoying I was really stressful um, and I kind of let my health go a bit and I put on a lot of weight and we had a I had a friend that was competing in his first Ironman so my family and I we all went up to Port Macquarie to watch that but there was a 5k fun run on the day before and being somewhat competitive by nature I entered the 5k fun run even though I wasn't anywhere near fit enough to do it and the what I now know is a serious mistake. I, I was also recovering from a quite a serious flu virus and I pushed myself way too hard in that 5K run and didn't think a lot of it. But the next day on the day of the Ironman, I slowly started developing really weird symptoms and I ended up getting admitted to, to, base, to the base hospital later that night and found out that I'd had a series of heart attacks, induced viral-induced heart attacks. I later found out it was a, a condition called myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. And it was all caused by having the virus and then exercising. And then it was a manifestation of that. Oh, that's so, so scary. Yeah, it was pretty scary. There's actually quite a funny anecdote, actually, because I kept on thinking I was okay and I thought it was indigestion. I kept on explaining it away. And, and I was, like, getting all motivated by watching everyone race at one juncture sort of halfway through the day. This is after I'd already had heart attacks. Well, didn't know that they were, but I later knew they were. I said to my wife, oh, I'm going to go to the local pool and try and swim a cave. So I literally sort of ran, it was a kilometre away. I went to the pool and there was no one there because everyone was watching the Ironman. Anyway, I swam about, I had it in my mind to swim 20 laps. I swam 13 and a bit laps and then had this episode where I got this intense pain in the chest, tightening of the chest, um, couldn't breathe, pretty much collapsed on the lane rope and took me a while to recover and I slowly walked to the end of the pool and I just slammed against the end of the pool and about 10 minutes later, I felt a bit better. And I thought, oh, okay, I've got six laps to go <laughs> <laughs> to finish my K. And uh, so, yes, I finished my K, uh, sort of ran back. And I remember when I got back, we had we were watching the Ironman from our balcony and where we were staying. And I said to Leanne, my wife, I probably should tell you about something that just happened. I'm a little bit worried. I'm not sure whether I'm not, there may be something not quite right with me. And um, she said, oh, I'm sure it's just indigestion. Don't worry about it. I went, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> so I kept on ignoring it, but it did, it was serious. And I guess what, yeah, there was some pretty emotional moments. So there was one moment where, and it's, it's kind of a little bit hard to even talk about this without getting emotional, but I'm laying in emergency. I mean, I got straight rushed into intensive care. Um, they kept on putting morphine. The pain was getting worse and worse. They kept on putting morphine, more, injecting morphine into me. And then by now, my wife and my daughter had come in and they were, um, I had my wife and daughter either side of me and I'd just been told that I'd been having heart attacks. You know, I kind of felt like I was pretty 
resilient or you know I just didn't think I was the kind of person that ever had a heart attack you know so I was just dealing with all this emotion and and my wife you know there were two two women in my life who I love more than anything just crying their eyes out on my shoulders and just thinking I was going to die any minute sort of thing like it was pretty um, it was pretty um it was a real wake-up call and mm. then anyway I ended up staying in hospital for about a week they worked out that it was not a conventional heart attack it was a viral thing still not good you know it can kill you <laughs> and it can have and, and often people have permanent damage from it by the end of the week I remember my children all my children sent me photos of when I was fit from when I was doing Ironman and they said dad we want you to be like this again please be like this again and it just inspired me but at that point I wasn't allowed to do any exercise and um, I was being looked after by a cardiologist and um, I had to rest for several months without getting my heart rate over like 100 beats a minute. Did all the right things. Um, and fortunately, um, I recovered and made a full recovery. Uh, I, I asked for permission to train for um, the Western Sydney Half Man that was held in November 2016. And, and it was also around that time or just after that that I met my coach that I mentioned earlier. So that's kind of how, how the journey's evolved yeah how it all linked in from there you then competed in Kona the very next year which is huge because that's world champs what was that like what was you know your first world championships like what you know almost was it about a year and a half after that moment in hospital yeah it was just an amazing experience and and look just to maybe give you a little bit of perspective so I, I grew up in a country town northern New South Wales on a dairy farm and I remember when I was a teenager watching on the nine wide world sports coverage of the Hawaii Ironman, and I just completely blown away by it, right? It just captured my imagination from, you know, when I was a teenager. And, and all my family love it. And, and we, we um, you know, we, without, without fail, every year since then we watched it. And I never dreamed in my wildest dreams that I would ever be there and actually get to do that race. So, so it meant a lot to me. There was a, it really meant a lot to me. And um, to have an opportunity to be there, yeah, it, just, it, it was just amazing. And, yeah, and we, and we turned it into a holiday. You know, my family came, my wife. I had really good – some of my best friends came as well. Joe and Alex, my bike mechanic and coach, they came they, – they, you know, keep in mind I hadn't known them all that long at that time, but yet they invested in travelling to Hawaii to support me. Another really good friend of mine, Colin, and another friend, Scott, um, you know, came over and became a real we became a real journey preparing for it, and it was incredibly exciting. And my employer at the time sponsored me and provided me with a lot of nice gear and helped with some of the cost. It was all going really well until five weeks before. I don't know whether you want me to share. What yeah, happened go. What happened? Like, what happened on so, the journey? So, with Ironman, you, you you have a long taper to freshen up and, and I'd organised, I'd taken a day off work on a Friday to train literally all day long from daylight to dusk and I'd organised something like a 200 kilometre bike ride actually with Alex and I was in the middle of nowhere, way, you know, it was like 100 kilometres south of um, Sydney and I just had this really innocuous four on a, on a railway line and just came down and um, hard on the side. I knew I'd done something pretty rock, pretty bad and I ended up going to Sutherland Hospital pretty much straight after that. And x-rays later confirmed that I'd cracked the rib, um, had a broken rib in the front and also behind in the, behind the scapula in the back. And I'd also torn four rib cartilages. And for anyone that's had broken ribs or torn rib cartilages would probably know that rib cartilages are actually more painful than broken ribs. Mm -hmm. um, but I was in hospital for two days. And I remember again, I was on morphine. Yeah, everyone was telling me the Hawaii dream's over. 
there's no way that you could possibly get to Hawaii um, and do do Hawaii I mean five weeks after an injury like that so yeah it was I was pretty disappointed and concerned but I never once gave up on the dream um, I never once gave up on the chance that I'd be able to somehow still get there um, it was a setback obviously like it, <laughs> it was obviously a setback um, but I tried yeah so I guess that was I thought that was worth sharing that that happened. Yeah. What was it um, that allowed you then from five weeks out having such an injury to be able to then compete at Hawaii five weeks later? Like, how did you get through that? I think this is a really interesting period of my life. So I'll, I'll just spend a little bit of time explaining it. So my attitude was I'm going to do everything in my power to get there to the start line. So I just had that positive attitude and I had a really supportive doctor. Basically, I was in a lot of pain. So when I came out of hospital, I think give you an idea, there was no way I could lay down. I couldn't lay down or get back up without extreme pain. So I slept laying up and I was on a lot of medication. So I did nothing at all except rest for about a week. Mm-hmm. And then, but typically an injury like this, uh, you're probably looking at six weeks, probably six weeks before anyone would normally start training again. But after about a week, I remember I spoke to my doctor and I said, what will, what will happen if I train? Can I train? <laughs> And he said, Jared, because your fractures are not displaced, he said, he said, you're probably not going to make it worse. He said, just, you know, it's just going to be, it's just going to be horrifically painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you'll be able to do much. So that was enough for me. I thought, well, if I'm not going to make it worse. I'm just going to give it my best. And so I remember, I think actually a, a week after the injury, I sat in my garage on the indoor trainer, staying perfectly still on my bike, but I just did six hours or something, right? Just indoor. So I was at least trying to maintain some fitness, but there was no way I could consider swimming or running at that point. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was probably about maybe two and a half weeks after I did start trying. There was a day I did start to try and swim and run. But to give you an idea, back you know back then because you're training for an Ironman, you've got to swim like 100 laps roughly. You know, 5k session. I didn't go straight in, but but I didn't go straight back to a 5k session, of course. But because I had a broken bone behind my scapula, every time I lifted my right elbow it was literally like a knife being stabbed in my back Mm. it was so painful excruciatingly painful it just took all my breath away so swimming was torture just torture and I just had to somehow bear it just to keep my fitness up on swimming I then found a uh, a thing called an alter g running device so I could run with lower gravity so Mm -hmm. I started to do that a little bit and then there was a pivotal day I think about three weeks after the injury where I thought, okay, I'm going to see what I can do today. So I remember I went to the pool, I swam a 5K in agony. And I went home, I sat on the indoor bike, and I, I think that day it was about four or five hours. And that by then I could ride the bike indoors. By the way, I wasn't allowed to ride on a bike until the race mm-hmm. on the road. It was too dangerous. The risk of me puncturing a lung if I crashed again and all that. So all my training was done indoors on the bike. But by, you know, three weeks in, I, it was... The pain was more bearable, but on this particular day, I really wanted to see if I could run, not in a gravity machine, but run on the road. So I started running. When I landed on my right leg, the vibrations coming up through the broke through the rib cartilages and the rib just was just sent waves of shuddering pain. And it also turns out you can't run without rotating your arms as well. So again, I was getting the back pain. So I started to hobble at a really slow pace, and it was just excruciatingly painful. And I remember just thinking, oh, this is, this is impossible. And I told myself, see if you can get, just see if you can run for a minute. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got to a minute. And when I got to a minute, I thought, see if I can just get to two minutes. Two minutes is better than nothing. 
and I got to two minutes. And when I got to two, I gave myself a goal of getting to five. And um, that day, I ended up running for three and a half hours and covered about 36K. I ended up running to, a, to some local soccer fields and tried to run on the grass. It was a bit softer and where no one could hear me. And I literally bellowed in pain for three hours as I was running, um, knowing that I'm not making it worse because the doctor said it wasn't going to make it worse. But I really endured a lot of pain. It was in the mind. Like, it taught me the power of the mind. Like, Joe, you can do this. You can do this. Just, you can do this. And I came home and had a shower and I was just like, yes, I now know I'm going to be able to do Hawaii. If I can get through that, I know I can do Hawaii. And I knew, and I knew it and I thought, I've still got another two weeks of healing. So I'm going to be even better. That's part of the journey. And I just thought I'd share that. And then there's what happened um, in the race itself. So yeah, so um, what happened? Was, Tell us about what happened in the race itself, because the journey wasn't over <laughs> just in the lead up. So by the time I got to Hawaii, you know, preparing for the race, I was actually feeling reasonably good. Like I still had, it still hurt to run and it still hurt to swim. Oh, and oh, that's the other thing. Um, I had stayed, stopped, I had stopped taking the medication, um, pain relief, and I made sure that the pain relief that I had was not banned. There's no way I would ever take any banned substance. I've never considered that. I got through the swim pretty uneventfully. Um, so it's an amazing experience swimming with a mass start of 2,300 2, people but, um, at Hawaii. But, um, and, and obviously being worried about being kicked, right, mm-hmm. with broken ribs. So I was just relieved to get through the swim without someone really hurting me. Um, but then what happened was in the very, probably about one and a half or two kilometres in, so you do the swim and then it's a 180-kilometre bike ride followed by a marathon run. I hadn't even done two kilometres on the bike where I had a, I had a pretty bad fall. Um, not caused, it was caused by the carelessness of one of my fellow competitors. He basically lost control and used me to stay upright and pushed me down, pushed me over going down the hill. And I did a full somersault, landed on my lower back and my back of my head and skidded quite a long way, took skin off. And one of the rules of triathlon is you're not allowed any outside assistance. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so I'm just laying there in agony. My helmet was shattered. I was, I was just in pain everywhere. Yeah, I just didn't know what damage I'd done, but I knew I'd done a lot of damage. I knew, so I knew I'd done some damage and I knew I was in pain. And at that moment, I just laid there. And what went through my head was, Jared, just get up and see whether your bike is workable. Mm-hmm. So I kind of slowly got up and did a few things and was able to work out that my bike was still workable. And I tried not to be negative. I tried not to think about what I'd done to myself, but I knew I was in pain. And I just, I, I, my mind went back to that day that I just described, that training day at home. And I thought, well, I was, uh, I put up with a lot of pain for three hours, three and a half hours. I can do it for 10. If I can do it for three, I can do it for 10. I knew I had probably another 10 hours, 10 or more hours of, of, of work to go. So I just had this, yeah, don't give up. This, this is not going to stop you type attitude. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was shaken up. I was very shaken up. I was worried. I didn't know what I'd done. And, and I was trying to self, as I got back on the bike, I was in a lot of pain. I was trying to self-assess what damage I'd done. I had these, um, I had a nice brand new aerodynamic helmet and the back of the back of it had completely shattered. And my riding glasses had somehow jammed up underneath the top of my head and it was putting a lot of pressure on the top of my head. And I was wondering why I had all this pain in my head. It took me about 60 kilometres on the bike to work out. <laughs> glasses were stuck up there and the other thing with um with when you're in a triathlon bike you you're in a aerodynamic position so your elbows are forward so there's a lot of so that was a very uncomfortable position mm-hmm. with the i later found out that i'd cracked my coccyx bone 
And I also, I had whiplash on my neck and I'd done damage to my sternum cartilage and that was kind of it. But a bit of skin off as well. But the, it was pro- probably what was hurting me the most was my lower back. Mm-hmm. And I, the whole bike ride, I'm thinking, I don't even know whether I'm going to be able to walk, let alone run a marathon. Mm. But I guess, yeah, I just kind of had a positive attitude and just kept going and just kept on focusing on the positives. And I'm like, I'm so lucky my bike. I just kept on focusing on the positives. I didn't think about the negatives. Yeah. I thought, I'm still in this. I'm still in this. I've got the fitness. I've done the work. I can do this. I can do this. But I was worried about whether I could run or walk. (laughs) And anyway, I finally got off the bike and, yeah, I I was in pain, but I was was able to manage a bit of a a reasonable pace. And, And I'm proud to say that I ran the entire marathon without walking. Wow. Uh, with, with the exception of the age stations. So I had a plan to walk the age stations because hydration is so important with mm-hmm. the big community owner. And I ended up doing a what in the circumstances where it was a, you know, I think a, a time to be res- a respectable time. I ended up breaking 12 hours. I ran 11 hours and 56 minutes, and which puts me, put me in the top half of the field um, at the World Championship despite all the adversity. And yeah, and, and sub 12 hours was actually a goal before I had the crash. Wow. And so, you did it with the crash, with both crashes. Yeah. 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 Well, no, no, no. I, I think, I think there's some, I'll probably, if it wasn't for the first crash five weeks earlier, I might have, you know, maybe have gone, been hoping for slightly better time, but it was still a competitive time for me. It was a journey and it just made it all the more sweeter, I guess. And yeah, it's a, it was a proud moment for my family and I. Yeah. Oh, I could imagine it would be. And especially, you know, when you're out, I guess it's only two Ks into the ride, but then you have that second crash. I, I know you would have been thinking, oh no, like that, what damage have I done? That is a terrifying thought to think. And you know, allowed outside assistance, you were probably far enough that your family couldn't see you. You were like, I'm in this by myself. Were you conscious of them like knowing where you would be or the next like time zone would? And you'd be like, oh no, they're going to know that something's wrong. That's so, you're so astute. I'm really impressed by that question. That's exactly what it was like. So because because what happens, the first 2K are over in like four minutes mm-hmm. and I was like 15 or 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And yep. they're wondering, they, were, they absolutely were worried sick. I've had they were it. actually waiting. They were actually waiting at a place called Hot Corner, which is literally you. where you, yep. yeah, waiting for me. And, and, you know, I've come, you know, the other thing, the night before we had dinner as a family, and we were talking about the next day and I said, there is only, these are my words, the only way I will not finish tomorrow is if something happens to me that is outside of my control and it is physically impossible for me to, to continue. Mm-hmm. That is the only way. It's not going to be through lack of effort or whatever, you know, or me. Yeah, uh, everything that I can control, I will control. I was really, and then so when I, when I crashed, I'm laying there, I'm thinking the one thing I said has happened, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So yes, they were really they were they were very worried. I could imagine. And, um, I've been I've been that person when my partner he broke his hip in a half Ironman, and I was like, uh, "Where is he? He should be coming down the finishing chute. Where uh, is he?" And then watching him in pain. So like I yeah I know that anxious feeling of going why why haven't he, why hasn't he come through? What's gone wrong? I was just yeah. guess it the, the thought of being on on a bike would make me even more stressed. At least like there's less, less damage you can do in a run. Yeah. So they they knew that I'd had a crash before I even left Kona to go out on the yeah you know, the really long out and back ride, and so they were worried. So they were worried sick for the whole bike ride, and then and there was a funny moment actually, well somewhat funny moment. I'd come off the bike and I just started the marathon, and I there's a there's a little bit it's captured on video actually where I've just complained to my daughter, Caitlin. I've just gone, oh, I'm in so much pain in my back. 
And she just goes, don't worry about that. You'll be fine. Just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking, easy for you to say. It's probably what you needed to hear. You didn't want sympathy at that point. (laughs) No, there was no no sympathy from anyone. It was just like, go, go, go. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. So you went from that that moment and you finished the race which is incredible that you know that would have been the sweetest finish and then you're like okay track cycling because track cycling is mm. kind of in my in my head it's very sprinty whereas mm. Mm. Ironman is mega endurance how do you make that switch actually I did I did continue on and do a couple more triathlons after that but only half Ironmans and so how I made the switches you know I've talked about Joe and Alex mm-hmm. um, who are really right into the cycling community and both track cyclists and and through them I met some other some I, I met a number of um you know some of Australia's best track cyclists um and I was and I had the privilege and of actually being invited on some social bike rides and people kept saying to me Jared you should take up track cycling we think you'd be good at it right and, <laughs> and I just started asking questions like I'd never even in my wildest dreams thought about being on a velodrome I just I always loved it I always loved watching it on mm-hmm. the you know, I always, I remember I always used to watch the individual pursuit in the, in the Olympics and just really enjoy that event and enjoy the track cycling. And I used to get, I'd pay to go to Dunkray Velodrome where they had the 2000 Olympics to watch events. And it's just something, I, and I remember I used to go out there and think, how do they ride on that surface? It's so <laughs> steep and never once dreamed that would be me one day. So, yeah, so I was encouraged to give it a go. So that's kind of how it came about. And I, I felt like I, with triathlon, as much as I love it and I still love it and I'm still passionate about it, I got to the point where I really held myself accountable to high performance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't really want to do a half Ironman if I didn't feel like I was a chance of, you know, being competitive and, you know, being, you know, it's like being a podium sort of potential type level. But to be able to, at that level, I had to train so hard and consistently and it took up so much time and it was probably... Yeah, I just felt like it was um, it was it was becoming hard to sustain year in year out the mm-hmm. level of training to compete at the level I wanted. Whereas with track cycling, we, with moving to just cycling, I just felt like it was one discipline instead of three, and maybe more manageable to fit into my life. Yeah, and a new challenge, you know, a new challenge. And to be honest, there were people that said to me, "Jared, you will be an Australian champion on the track." Like these are people people that were literally who were current world champions were mm-hmm. saying. We've looked at your power data. We think you can be, and I'm just like, how can you say that? I've never been on a track. And I was so confident that I was going to be successful. So I must admit that I did, you know, that sort of played my ego a little bit. And I'm thinking, gee, you know, I've never been that good at anything. And yeah, I'm going to have to give this a go. So that's kind of how it happened. And it was about, what's it when you now? Yeah, so it was 2019, around towards the end of 2019, I did what they call a try the track session mm-hmm. and um, at Dunkray Velodrome. Because you know you've you've actually got to get an accreditation. You've got to have someone to show you how to ride on the on the velodrome because it is dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so I did that one day and um, instantly fell in love with it. And just found it so such an adrenaline rush, such a thrill. And I knew that I well, when I, I just couldn't when I got home, I couldn't wait to get back again. <laughs> like I just just you had this yearning. I was hooked on it without even knowing how I was going to go. You know, so that's how I got into it. Oh, and you've had some incredible results. So can you take us through some of them? I know you've got some record Australian records. You've got some Australian ch- like championships. Like t- talk us through, you know, your, your favourite ones. Basically, my, my first season, I struggled. It took me a while. <laughs> like, and I, 
it just took a while. There's so many, so many things to overcome, so many challenges. And in my first New South Wales Championships, I managed to get bronze in the individual pursuit. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, I never thought I'd ever get a state medal in anything, right? So that was huge for me. And that was in uh, February or March 2020. So two years ago, that was my first championship event. And then I continued to work really hard. I had a real breakthrough in November of 2020 where I, I did a time of two minutes. Well, I did it. I really dramatically improved my time and did a time that was pretty much close to a straight record wow. in my third ever go, my third ever go at the sport. And so then, then carrying forward to the state championships um, the following year, which was 2012, I've got to think about this. So, yeah, only last year, March, February last year. I won my first state title and that was very special. But what was also special about it was I actually set an Australian record in the process in the individual pursuit event. And I still hold that record today. That was a record that had stood, had stood since 2016 and was held by Gary Mandy, who's a, a great cyclist and a dual Olympian himself. And then last year, because of COVID, we had quite a, we, our national championships were sort of cancelled three times. Mm-hmm. I did win a I did win a, no, a national a notional national championship last year, or national sorry national medal, but it wasn't recognised as a championship because they didn't have an event. So we've just recently had what was my second ever nationals um, held in um, April in Enemies Velodrome in Brisbane, and I'm just over the moon because I've come away with two gold and two silver from that. So I won won the individual pursuit. Uh, and also won the scratch race. Um, sorry, won the points race. I came second in scratch and second in team pursuit. And I came fifth in the time trial. If, if you win a national title in, in track cycling or in any cycling event in Australia, you're also awarded what is a coveted national champions Australian jersey. Mm-hmm. So I've now got two of those. Um, it's, you know, it's something I'm looking at it framed in front of me, actually. <laughs> and um, I never thought I'd ever achieve something like that so so those friends of mine that said Jerry you can be a, you know you take up this sport you'll be pretty good at it I guess I've, you know I've proved them <laughs> correct but it's, yeah it's been a lot of work and a lot of um, I've had a lot of support along the way and but that that's that's kind of what stands out so yeah and I'm still on a bit of a high it's only been a few weeks since since nationals and whilst I always loved endurance events you know you talk about endurance first track you know I, I think I was uh, pretty good at reasonably good at endurance events because of my determination mm-hmm. but in terms of what I'm most suited to I, I kind of got reasonably good results in triathlon because of how hard I trained and how hard I worked as opposed to my natural ability whereas I from a natural ability perspective I'm far more suited to track mm-hmm. because I'm a, you know I'm a reasonably big guy um, and it's more of a power sport mind you the events that I do are classified as endurance events so <laughs> in track pursuit is actually yeah like it's it's, it's only two kilometers but that's regarded as endurance on the track. Like it's a long way to go fast. Whereas a sprint, a sprint in the track is like 200 metres or, you know, it's, mm. it's a very different sort of dynamic. Yeah, and it would have been a steep hurdle to, you know, get your head around. So that brings me to, to I guess, my next question is if you could go back and relive a moment in your sporting journey, what would it be and why? Oh, uh, look, I think... I'd, relive running down the finish line at Kona mm-hmm. so just because you know it's something I dreamt about it was something I never thought would be ever possible um and the atmosphere the feeling of overwhelming oh, I'm getting emotional <laughs> telling about it, like the overwhelming sense of just achievement the adrenaline rush it just it's incredibly incredible experience um and just to 
to be able to absorb that atmosphere and that feeling of intense satisfaction and achievement. I'd love to do that again. You know? mm, especially I'm, after I'm the lead very, up. <laughs> yeah, and after the lead up, it just meant so much to me, you know. So, yeah, I'm very. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I've had a, I've had a few you know, similar moments, and if I could share, like my um, my wife was with me in Brisbane, and she was on the she was there to watch me win the points race on the last day of competition. And it came down to the last sprint, and I and I won I won the last sprint, which was worth double points. And winning that race was I wasn't expecting to win that race, um, and to do that in front of my wife because that that was a very special moment too. I'd love to relive that as well. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I'm sure she'll like hearing that. <laughs> sport, I guess, like the reason why I started this podcast is because I was like, well, sport has taught me so much. And given me a you know a platform or a tool to learn so much and has kind of shaped who I am. What ha- what kind of benefit has sport provided you as an individual that's like transferred over to your everyday life outside of the sporting context? There's a lot of reasons. There's so many. <laughs> okay. So where do I start? So first of all, I think it keeps you in good shape, keeps you healthy. I think it's so I think that's pretty obvious. Um, I also think it, it provides a good role model for your family. Mm-hmm. So I think um as a as a parent as a father i think that that's a good that's that's important i personally think that there are so many similarities and parallels between sport and business uh i, I feel like my sporting journey i think i've learned many lessons that i apply in the business world and i also apply in my personal life you know applying in life in general and probably more around resilience and not giving up and and hanging in there and overcoming adversity and dealing with challenges and setbacks um, also, um, the importance of teamwork and collaboration and, and positivity. And you know, there's a whole range of reasons. You know, I often talk at work about the, the, the benefits of a, of a growth mindset. And, and, and I try and encourage people at work to take a growth mindset in dealing with really significant challenges at work. Uh, and then on top of all that, you know, just the experiences. I think it just gives you, makes you more, more of a well-rounded person. It gives you something to... To live for like i think it's healthy to have a personal interest it's given me amazing lifelong friendships as well um you know i feel part of a you know the camaraderie i feel just with the people i train with the people i compete against you know i've got great relationships with the with my competitors you know we're fierce competitors on the track but great <laughs> friends off the track and all for all of those reasons um i, I just think sports is, you know it's 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 really valuable mm-hmm. and beneficial and you've summed it up really well. You know, you've given us a good list of things, but it's a very broad list. And I love that you've mentioned like the fact that, yes, it's not just life, but it's also like business. So like, you know, in a corporate setting, you wouldn't think that sporting lessons would come involved, but they, they do. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Like I, I, I'm a massive believer in that. And there's so many analogies between that I draw from sport to business and and I'm a massive believer in the importance of teamwork, collaboration, coaching, development, take, you know, accepting feedback as a gift, working hard when you need to, celebrating your successes, coaching, development, skill, like everything, all almost everything's just portable to me. Like it's, it's, there's so much overlap. And, mm, and it's great that like it's such a easy tool to put kids or adults to learn like it doesn't really matter and there's so many different types of sport that you can be involved in and you can learn those lessons no matter you know what level you're playing like you could be in an Auskick 
little under, I don't know, under eights team, or you could be, you know, competing at Kona World Champs and you're still going to learn similar lessons and similar life The principles are the same. The principles Mm -hmm. are consistent at all levels. Yeah, which is one of my next questions. So if there's a lesson, and it's hard because you've got to narrow it down to one lesson you've learned along the way that you want to share. So maybe you can give us one that, you know, directly relates to business. A lesson I've learned along the way. So I can only say one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The best one. Uh, for me, I think it's not taking notice of negative negativity. Hmm. So... Oftentimes I've been told, Jared, you won't be able to do that. You can't do that. And I've often used that as motivation to say, well, yes, I can. I'm going to prove you wrong. (laughs) Right, right. So oftentimes, yeah, if you're surrounded by some, yeah, so don't listen to negative people. Mm, That's that's a good one. Yeah, I've got plenty of others, but I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe we'll have to get you on again to share some more lessons. (laughs) That's a really good one. So don't listen to the negative feedback of other people. And I guess like, that well, goes can, I, can, I give, can I bring that to light? Can I give you some colour around that? Yeah, so, let's do so, it. So, so when I I grew up on a dairy farm, middle of nowhere, and I always loved rugby league, but I never got to play rugby league because you just couldn't play it. And then when I was old enough to drive a car, I said to my friends, I'm going to try out and try and get in the rub, make a rub, play rugby league. And I said, I'm going to try out for first division, first grade in country, which was a pretty high level. And... I had all these friends that were really high-level rugby league players that just laughed at me and they just said, you're going to get this. just impossible. There's no way. And um, in my very first game of rugby league in my entire life, I played first grade and got man of the match. I proved them all wrong, <laughs> right? So <laughs> it was a trial game, but I trained so hard. and It was just like that drove me, right? Mm-hmm. So oftentimes I was surrounded by people. Sometimes it's jealousy, to be honest with you, or it's people that just, they just want to bring you down because they see you trying and they'll, so I've, that's just why I'm, it's, it's probably just something that relate, that I relate to. And, and then similarly, you know, um, you know, when I ran my first marathon, there's some people saying, you're too young, you're not going to be able to run a marathon. And I'm like, Oh, you watch me go. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to finish. I'm going to do it. And, and even when I was at working, my first boss said, Jerry, you won't try are too hard. You know, um, I don't think you should do it. They're too hard. <laughs> right. Mind you, we've, Society has come a long way with, with attitudes to sport as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that that lesson I learned from a fairly young age. It doesn't. I don't really. I don't really have any negative people these days around me. But but um, anyway, it's just something that I learned along the way. Hmm. And it's a good lesson to have. And like, I'm a young female in their mid twenties, and to hear that lesson, I'm like, oh yeah, like don't listen to the people who say that no, you can't do it because who's mm-hmm. to tell me that they know what I can and can't do like it's me who decides what I can and can't do correct yeah yeah Yeah, it goes back to my it goes back to what I said about you know a growth mindset Mm -hmm. a fixed a fixed mindset is really like the negative kind of people that will say well nothing can change you are what you are and you can't change what you are that's Mm -hmm. kind of a fixed mindset whereas you know growth mindset is well if I work on it if I put in the effort then I can change who I am and I can do great things yeah so. And, and that's in sport, that's in life, that's in business. It's in every single area. Yeah. And I, and I like that, you know, sport was the tool that taught you that. My next question is, have you been involved in a project where sport has been, speaking of a tool, a tool to develop the community? I'm trying to think of a really good example. I think what I would say, if I go back to my days of growing up on a farm, I, I feel like 
sport brings I think sport is an integral part of all communities yeah and I think I really I feel like it it, it, it reinforces a healthier community, a more safer community. I think it's great for children and development of younger children to get them into sport, to develop, you know, give, helps them with friendships and, and all those sort of things. Um, but I also think sport brings a community together. So it could be whether there's a, um, a working bee at a local club or, or it could be that there's a sporting group that's getting behind a cause. So right from an early age, um, you know, I remember I played, um, you know, I played hockey and, you um, and so that was, if it wasn't for hockey, I wouldn't have got to see anyone on weekends. Mm. So that was a way of bringing the community together. And, the, and, that, and that also brought all the, all the farmers together from different areas to actually have a reason to sort of socialise. And, and that, was, that was positive. Uh, in terms of projects, you know, I remember um, yeah, there's, there's nothing major that stands out, but to me it's just an ongoing thing. It's just the way, the way communities interact with sport these sort of things happen all the time right? mm-hmm. so you know I've been involved in um, in lots of fundraising events my wife was very heavily involved in fundraising events and we'd use sporting groups to sort of support that I remember um, doing a lot of work on, on a series of working bees with the community to sort of um, try improve the quality it's putting place a, an irrigation system for a local um, golf course and mm-hmm. those sort of projects um, yeah I just think that community and sport are integrally linked and that's how I sort of view that. Yeah, and even at every level, like at that junior level when you're playing hockey, like it allowed all the parents to get together and watch their kids play hockey. Like you think of the mental health of farmers, like they're not alone anymore on that Saturday when they're watching you guys play hockey. They can talk about, I don't know, like whether the rain was coming or whether it was a bad season or I'm not a farm person, so I'm not exactly sure, but they can talk about the struggles and they have that outlet to have that. And, you know, they're not directly involved in the sport. They're not the ones playing it, but that parental involvement allowed them, you know, a source into the community. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. I just think sport brings community and brings people together um, and it promotes a a happier community and 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 a healthier community. And I, and I think it provides great opportunities and development for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah. And I don't see that changing in any negative way in the future. Like, I think it's just going to grow and develop. And I guess, like, speaking of, the last question is, where do you yeah. see this, the future of sport? Yeah, that's a question. I don't... Floated. I, I, I I, it's not something I think about a lot. Like, I think, I think about it a lot in terms of track cycling mm-hmm. because... I'd love to encourage people to take up track cycling because I'd love to see more people involved because in some ways track cycling is not um, a, 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 a sport that is as what you know, go back 30 or 40 years you would get thousands of people going to a to watch a track cycling event mm. whereas it's sort of so that that disappoints me a bit I'm a bit biased about that and I'd love to see more what, I, what I've noticed if I think let's just think about what's happened with sport though so I had parents who were not very supportive of sport and culturally they grew up through through the depression and sport was almost seen as a negative it was a luxury um you should be working and earning money not wasting money or wasting time sport is a chance of getting injured so you can't work the the older generations were really brought up in pretty tough times and also sport was very much an amateur sport so you didn't have you know the professionalism there was a whole lot of challenges with sport and even as I grew up and developed and on my own sporting journey I, I noticed a shift in the way my parents viewed sport mm-hmm. over time and I think what I've seen is 
clearly, you know, we've seen such a, an evolution of sport to be far more professional today. And I think society, society's attitudes to sport today are completely different to when I was a teenager or when I was a, a kid. So we're talking 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I have, as I've grown up, I've definitely seen a very significant change. So, you know, what will it be like in another 40 years and how will that go? Like, I think, you know, we're going to see... I think we're going to see it at a sport level. We're going to see certain sports flourish and others sort of, you know, move forward. I think a lot will depend on the quality of the administration, actually. I actually, that's a, the, I'm just thinking out loud, Fiona. I, I do think there are opportunities to improve the way we administer some sports mm-hmm. and no disrespect to any organisation. I think it's more of a challenge with funding. I think there are some inherent challenges in the way in which sport is set up in Australia, um, but that's a whole new topic we could get into and do a deep dive on it, or we could talk about another day. But um, And it's something I have some insights to. So, so I do think we do have to not rest on our laurels. We do not, we've got to, we do, got, we've got to be careful not to take things for granted. Mm-hmm. I think we've got to face into issues like transgender challenges and equity issues, and I know that's a, um, you know that's an area of another area of debate and, and, and contention and, um, and and there's widespread opinion on that and so I, I just think we've got to continue to nurture our sports and our sporting environment to, to so that it continues to flourish and interesting though you've you made me stop and think about it and it's not something I really it's not something I really think about a lot other than for track cycling I I would love to encourage people to give track cycling a go and and, and fall in love with it like I have. Yeah, and it's funny that you have mentioned that it's like maybe the administrative side and there was different views on sport, you know, 40 years ago by people who went through a different time. Like there was obviously a lot more, not a lot more, just different challenges and different priorities in the world at that, at that space. And I remember when I, oh gosh, 10 years ago, when I put my preferences in for uni, eight years ago, nine years ago, I put my preferences for uni and I put Bachelor of Sport Development as my number one. And I remember people saying, oh, like, are you sure you don't want to do something with a higher ATAR? Like you've got, you know, you've got so much potential to do something else. Why, why do you want to do sport? I'm like, well, I, I love sport. I can, you know, it's made a big impact in my life. Like, I want to be one of those administrators to make a difference in the sporting context. Like I want to be able to make a change and make sport either more accessible or more professional or something that people see it, you know, it can be a job. And yeah, I think like the shift in that, like I'm right now working for a a state sporting organization and I'm like, well, you know, I wouldn't have ever dreamed of doing that when I was 16, but like I'm doing it now. And yeah, it's exciting that you can actually have a full-time job in a in a role like that. And I'm doing my role is literally administration. Like it's like I am doing that. So it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's really yeah. No, I can really relate to everything you just said. And um, yeah, I'm really pleased that that's worked out so well for you as well. Yeah. And like I just think like maybe the reason why 40 years ago it wasn't seen as that is because there wasn't that like you know structured uni degree like sport management sport development that people Mm. could do to then work in that professional space like it was just amateurs Mm. running sporting organizations and like good on them but like now we've got paid people to do that job and the evolution Mm. that you'll see doing that well it's you know 
astronomical, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. It's a, it's a very exciting yeah. space. <laughs> it's, it's great to talk to someone that's so passionate about sport, you know, and um, yeah, I really appreciate your, um, your interest and questions and oh. it's been great um, having a chat with you. No, well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome to, you know, have a little bit of a familiar story in terms of like triathlon. Like I am familiar with the mm. sport, but like mm. your journey through it and listening to the lessons you've learned are unique to you and, you know, sharing that with our audiences, I'm sure going to inspire some people. I hope so. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. This is a completely independent podcast that has been created to share the journey and lessons of top-level sporting professionals, but also your everyday lover of sport. If you liked this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review and share it with someone who you think would also enjoy it. Until next time.